Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. I am Jim Grant. Coming up on today's show we have our guest Sally Beck rejoins us and also looking at the following articles as well. We'll be looking at some C-SPAN footage that talks about the Pfizer vaccine being experimental emergency use home. Facebook is listening to you through your devices. A bit about the relationship between Prince Charles and Jimmy Savile. Sewage in the sea and loads of dead sea creatures. I'm sure that's got nothing to do uh, with each other and a poor student uh, has had a very unpleasant reaction to the vaccine that and much much more coming up on today's edition of beyond the news it's friday october the 29th so for years i've been trying to tell people this and they look at me like i am paranoid but if you don't believe me then just i don't know start saying greek holiday greek holiday holidays in greece around your phone quite a lot and then go and scroll through your news feed give it a day or so something like that or you know something like dental implant dental implant do you know what i mean something that you wouldn't normally use through your everyday life something weird and then watch it pop up on your news feed and of course you've got alexas and everything else you know how can it Alexa? Well, how can it listen to its name so it knows to reply to you if it's not listening permanently? And uh, of course, all the GCHQ and all that stuff. We know that information is power and money, and you can it's all the metadata and the Cambridge Analytics and all stuff like that. All of those. Oh, we've got loads and loads of data, loads of things that companies would kill for to be able to know what customers are talking about, to be able to sell, get the product up just as they're talking about it. I'm sure Facebook would nice people or meta now as they want to uh, call themselves which is an interesting name isn't it metadata and all such things so um an american coffee shop coffee shop owner has falsely claimed that facebook is spying on her through her smartphone i'll tell you what well is it false i remember watching an Eamon holmes thing where he said exactly the same thing go and do it on your phone go and talk about it and see what pops up i'll tell you i'll tell you a quick one this is true you know when i um I did the joke about 40 over 40 with the uh, the jab, um, the, the vaccine data a few podcasts ago where you're more likely to get COVID if you're over 40 and you are double vaccinated. And I did the joke about 40 after 40. Um, the next time I my phone was next to me, I had it switched off. Um, silent, but on. And uh, yeah, I get all these Viagra adverts. <laughs> popping up so to speak pun intended popping up all right so um a tiktok has claimed that facebook is listening to her through her smartphone's microphone okay well go and go and i suggest you go and do the thing i mentioned for yourself in fact i've spoken to many people and they've already mentioned it already so go and do it for yourselves have a chat to your friends and see if they uh most people just don't care oh well you know yeah it's just listening and another thing is they claim that this stuff can't happen uh, whether it's not Facebook, it might be security services. Go and listen to the, go and watch the documentary on Kim.com, where they, um, you know, where it's quite clear. Uh, they say, well, the New Zealand Prime Minister, we're not listening to you. And it all comes out in court. They've listened to everything. And then, yeah, he just said, oh, I wasn't wrong. I'm not resigning. And then just resigned. So, um, yeah, she added that. So uh, I own coffee shops and we're having an oat milk shortage. The TikTok star, whose real name is not known, told her 38,000 followers. So my wholesaler asked me to meet and we can do, still do a little taste test of some different oat milk products. We meet, we steam oat milk, we taste test. 
Sounds like a lovely day out. She added that later that night she went home and her Facebook app was suddenly filled with adverts for oat milk. The influencer implied that Facebook may have recorded her conversation through her phone's microphone in order to better target adverts. No, you reckon? Go go and do it. Go and do this for yourselves. There you go. And it's you'll be, you'll be able, this is an easy one to be able to uh, uh, see for yourselves. This happens all the time. And before you ask, no, I wasn't... Uh, talking about any other forms of Viagra Wild pop up on my phone. Uh, so, yeah, go and do that one. Nice little experiment. You can have uh, some fun for yourself. And in case anyone says, oh, Jim, don't be ridiculous. You know, if there's all these billions of users on Facebook, you wouldn't have enough people in the world to listen to it. Of course they wouldn't. That's not how it's done. It's done through keywords. Keyword algorithms. And you know how you can, like, what's the Shazam, is it, where you can tell the tune and it does it to you? Yeah, just keywords. It just, or just listen, what keywords pop up, what products are there, who's paid for all, all of that kind of, you know. So um, that wouldn't have cropped up if there wasn't an oat milk producer doing business with Facebook because, you know, the advert wouldn't have existed if it wasn't. So, yeah, boom, okay, we've got a new client. This is how I think it works. We've got a new client, oat milk, right, okay, add, add oat milk to the um to the uh, to the keyword search, we've listened to it. Bang, 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 bang. Right. Oh, it's triggered off. Psh, boom. Quick. Send it all to their news video. All done automatically. I doubt a human's even involved required to listen. So that's my opinion. Um, so claimed that her app became. I would be interested to know. Let's scroll down a little bit. Um, uh, claim that has falsely claimed. So why is she falsely then? Um, Facebook has repeatedly denied the claims. So it's false because Facebook has said it's false. Mm, that's not really good journalism, is it? You've got one person saying one thing, another person saying another thing, and you just present that as like, OK, this woman said this and Facebook denied it. But you don't need to say it's false because you haven't proved that it's false. Other than, you know, unless, you know, experts say that while Facebook hoards plenty of data, it's extremely unlikely that the company secretly records hundreds of millions of people. Oh, experts say... <laughs> I wonder if it's the same sort of experts with the same sort of conflicts of interest as the Facebook fact checkers in Wuhan. The key point is that Facebook doesn't have to. It knows about you from your browsing data and profile information to target you with very specific ads. Yes, it will do that. But you mark my words. I was not searching for Viagra. I can assure you. I was not searching for penile dysfunction. <laughs> I can assure you. Go and do it for yourselves. And then let me know the result at beyondthenews at protonmail.com. So, uh, yeah, we'll see if it's, oh, it's the same experts that said, oh, don't be silly. It didn't come out of the Wuhan lab. Oh, <laughs> I have absolutely no um, um, respect for mainstream media, their experts <laughs> and Facebook telling the truth so there you go that's why go and do it for yourselves and let me know the results you know good or bad no no i did it jim it didn't come up you know because i've done that before we did the whole um i was never on the bandwagon but i finally got a chance to do the whole magnet to a, a friend that had had the vaccine's arm and no it didn't stick it did not do anything at all so um yeah always look at things for yourself don't tr trust what i that's if there's one thing that I want you to take on board from listening to Beyond the News. It's that don't take on board anything that someone says without doing your own research first, especially mainstream media. So this is by the BBC. That was by The Sun, by the way. Uh, 
Michelle Roberts, health editor, BBC News Online. Oh, did you love the way the sun did your little clickbait thing? Like, oh, it's listening to your phone. Oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> that little clickbait headline there from the sun. Oh, well, you know, we always know what, what journalists of integrity they are. So COVID, double vaccinated, can still spread virus at home. Uh, yeah, double jab. So I don't even need to go into that, do I? Um, even if they have no or few symptoms, the chance of them transmitting the virus to other unvaccinated housemates is about 2 in 5 or 38%. This drops to 1 in 4 or 25% if housemates are also fully vaccinated. Yeah. So um, there you go. The double vaccinated can still spread virus at home. <laughs> and next week, oh, they can still spread the virus outdoors. But still, you need your booster shots. And uh, I think it would be an interesting discussion to have with people uh, on, you know, on a serious note to ask them, what would it take for you to decide those vaccines? Ask someone who had the first two, what would it take for you to be convinced those vaccines are a bad idea to take? And you can go down the road of that on two things. Either it's useless, you know, for example... I've I've got double vaccine. You know, that's another thing. All care workers must be vaccinated mandatorily and care homes are indoors. Right. So if the double vaccinated can still spread the virus. Why mandate? You see the point? So. But ask them, what would it take for you to think that either it doesn't work or. You know, that show them the table where it says you're more likely to get covid if you've been double vaccinated, if that isn't enough, what would it take? And if they go nothing, I don't know, you know, a couple of people have said that to me. I've never spoken to them again. What's the point? There's no point. But they're always the first to go on to Facebook. You know, anti-vax this, anti-vax that, anti-vax that. It's like, man, you've already admitted your mind is closed. So perhaps I should show you the same courtesy and not engaging you in any single way. It's their right to take a vaccine to to that's going to cause them to have a 40% more chance of getting COVID if they're over 40. It's their right to take a vaccine, even though they can still, you know, spread it at home. But it isn't their right to deny reality and expect others to stay silent. So ask them, what would it take what would you need to see because i think the proof's already out there but i mean i would be interested because we need to start having these conversations because you know it's going to get bad over the winter and it's going to be blamed on the anti-vaxxers even though the you know the whole it's a farce absurdity at this point but the emperor has no clothes and the vast majority of the people are believing that he has no clothes and they're believing that he's wearing a fine suit of armor so I chatted briefly about this with our guest later on. I recorded the interview yesterday and uh, just wanted to article from The Telegraph about Prince Charles and uh, Jimmy Savile. Um, but I can't seem to read it at the moment due to the cookies. So I did have a backup of The uh, Express. Jimmy Savile creepily licked Princess Diana. 
where, I wonder, and inserted himself into Charles's marriage. Jimmy Savile was able to hide his horrific predatory crimes during his lifetime by engaging in charity work and establishing relationships with high-profile figures. However, in Thursday's ITV documentary on Savile, it was claimed Princess Diana recalled from the abuser while gullible Prince Charles enjoyed having him around. And the yep several key figures where does it say about the he brought him in to involve him yeah the former royal correspondent claimed Savile was able to involve himself with Charles and Diana's marriage and that's not the only one there have been less uh, when I first started looking into this about sort of covering this about eight years ago there were lots of links in the garden stuff but I couldn't find as many now so uh, but there you go the, the, the Guardian one I remember was about yeah, he was Prince Charles called him in for help with marriage guidance counselling. But there you go. You've got um, a couple of sources there and maybe you can read the Telegraph one. All the sources are on the Beyond the News Facebook page, comment section and the Spotify links as well. So just wanted to uh, give it that. That was, um, oh, that's Thursday, October the 7th by Charlotte McIntyre. I didn't realise that was until now. I thought that was brought out of the ether. I can't remember any. Anyway, this stuff's been going on for ages. So I just brought it up and I just wanted to source what I was saying later on in the interview because I realised that not all of you may have listened to my Beyond the News early days in Radio Lewis eight years ago. Uh, this was also brings up uh, another point. This is Sunday the 24th of October. Learning the ropes why Germany is building risk into its playgrounds. This is from The Guardian by Philip Alterman. Lofty climbing towers are part of a trend away from total safety and towards teaching children to navigate difficult situations. Here, here. And we actually, it's funny because this popped up on my, um, when I was doing some research after I'd interviewed Sally, I thought that's perfect to put into show because this is something again that we discuss later on uh, as you'll hear. Uh, and again, something again was um, we talked about with Sally and that's current events as well. Three days ago from the BBC, drone captures sewage pumped into sea for days. A photographer has captured a pipe pumping filtered sewage into Langston Harbour in Hampshire. Watch how it happened and what's being done about it. And uh, you've probably seen it in the news. They're pumping it all over the place. And why shouldn't they? The British public will do nothing. Like I've said before, when when you get an obedient nation, all the wolves call on their other wolf mates and go, oh, feeding time, boys. And I'm sure this has got nothing to do with uh, the last article as well. This is from the Mirror. I'm trying to get a date for you on this. This is 28th of October, so it's yesterday. There you go. So a couple of days after the uh, pumping of the sewage thing. Um, thousands. This is from the Mirror by Joanne Welford and Tim Hanlon. Thousands of sea creatures wash up dead on UK beaches in worst case ever seen. Massive waste-tile piles of sea creatures, including crabs and lobsters, have been washing up on Teesside beaches, including an investigation, leading to an investigation into the cause. <laughs> Don't think it was anything to do with the article a couple of days ago then and the massive sewage that's been pumped out all over the UK. Nope, sure it isn't. Um, just make certain the wolves have one of their friends do the inquiry, point it somewhere else. The British people will go, that doesn't make sense. But all the X-Factor's on. Massive numbers of sea creatures have suddenly started to wash up on some northeast beaches with the mystery leading to see if there's a link to pollution. Gee, you reckon? Dead and living crabs. Lo anyway, you get the idea on that one. You read it for yourself. Um... This is from The Independent. Woman finds vast trove of voice recordings collected by Amazon's Alexa, and you can hear yours. This is only six days ago by Adam Smith. Oh, I wonder if the experts will say, oh, no, that doesn't exist. 
Amazon customers can request all their data from the shopping giant and can automatically delete voice data in the Alexa app. A TikTok video showing a woman's shock at how much voice data Amazon's collected on her has received millions of views and been liked hundreds of thousands of times. I requested all the data Amazon has on me and here's what I found, she said in the video. The woman has two Amazon Echo Dot speakers and another Echo device to control her smart home light bulbs. Yep, the smarter the device is, usually the less informed about the surveillance technology the owner of those devices is. So there you go. That's, uh, there's no expert saying that's false. These things listen all the time, record, and there you go. And if you're right, I don't have anything in my home. And if you're, you know, and yeah, if you want privacy, don't have anything that can connect to the internet around you when you speak. It's as simple as that. There's no other way. And if people look at you for being paranoid, then, um, you know, in this particular case, point them to be on the news and say, I'm not paranoid, I'm just informed. Here's why. And, you know, what did she call it? What was the exact words? Um, uh, you can hear yours. That oh, doesn't matter. Right. Okay. Next one. So this is from C-SPAN. That's like the official political channel in the United States, I believe. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration's Advisory Committee met to discuss emergency use authorization for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine in children. So I know this is the United States, but let's be clear, it's for emergency use only. Emergency use only. Anyone that says, oh, it's been cleared and tested, it's been cleared for emergency use only. Straight from cspan.org, right there. Um, next one. Student loses leg after second cross jab, then dies. And um, I'm not going to make that's terrible. This is out of the Bangkok Post, so thoughts go to him and his family. But you just know there's going to be some people on social media that so love the vaccines, they're going to say something stupid like, cool, imagine how worse it would have been if you didn't have the vax. Next article here tonight, this is from The Conservative Woman. Uh, lone MP puts his head above the parapet for vaccine victims. This is by Sally Beck, September the 14th. Finally, an MP has challenged the government on horrific levels of COVID vaccine damage recorded under the yellow card scheme run by our watchdog, the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MRHA. It currently shows 1,632 deaths and 3,600 uh, yeah, 36030 injuries, so 360,000 injuries since December the 1st, 2020, far more than any vaccine in the past. Sir Christopher Chope, Conservative MP for Christchurch, has researched the reporting system set up in 1979 and its accompanying compensation programme and found them woefully inaccurate. Uh, sorry, inad inadequate, not inaccurate, inadequate. A fact anyone who has tried to claim for damage by a vaccine is painfully aware of. He, was he has introduced the COVID-19 vaccine damage bill to deal with the vaccine claims which are currently handled in what is best described as a hostile environment. Chope told the Commons last Friday that he estimates that more than 10,000 people have suffered real serious damage as a result of doing the right thing and was shocked when the Labour MP for Cambridge, Daniel Zeichner, suggested that there were more urgent priorities, asking, I wonder why this issue should get preference over others. So there you go. There you go. Um, that's, you know, 
that that's the that's the government that's the opposition yeah 10,000 damaged people yeah and we're going to do about it britain that's you know that's what they are but uh, so that mp is to be commended i do believe and now let's go to the author of that article sally beck we're now rejoined by Sally Beck, popular guest on a podcast we did a couple of months ago. And uh, Sally, welcome back to Beyond the News. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Jim. How are you? Very, very well, thank you. Looking forward to get, bringing up the best of Sally Beck's articles over the year. And uh, if you want to see for yourself Sally's work, you can visit www.sallybeck.co.uk. Uh, Beck spelled B-E-C-K. So um, where should we start? Uh, which of your, you've given me four articles here uh, tonight to talk about. Um, Return of Imelda, Could You Be Friends with a Burglar, Charge of the Heavy Brigade, and the Scandinavians ask why we English hate our kids. What would you like to start with first? Well, let's start with Imelda, um, mm-hmm. because that's probably the oldest one. And um, I just happened to be in the Philippines on... Uh, BBC drama recording and I was with a photographer who said who who was a hello photographer and he said oh I've, I've uh, taken Imelda's picture before shall we see if we can get an interview with her and I went yeah why not anyway we did so we off we went to Imelda Marcos's um, flat in Manila and for people who don't remember she is the former first lady um famous for her shoes so everyone said that um she had three thousand pairs of shoes but one of the first things she told me when we walked into her flat was it's nothing like three thousand it that's it's fifteen hundred pairs not three thousand pairs and she went to get boxes full of shoes which she said had been given to her by various different shoe manufacturers in Manila and she'd been quite often criticised for um, excesses and the day I was with her we took a trip to her lawyer's house and he basically had a bunch of writs and I can't remember the exact number but I think there was over a hundred so she was being sued by a hundred different people and this was after her husband had died but what was really interesting about Amelda was um, she had a baby grand piano in her room and on the piano were loads of photographs and the front row of the photographs you would imagine that's the most important and there was Amelda with Colonel Gaddafi Imelda with Chairman Mao, all the different despots of the world, as she said. And then sort of tucked in the middle of the photographs, there was one of her with Prince Charles. So I just assumed that, you know, Prince Charles was not as important to Imelda as um, Chairman Mao or Colonel Gaddafi. Or maybe she'd heard that uh, Prince Charles, for his marriage guidance council, and you can Google this, listeners, uh, when he was in trouble with Princess Diana, uh, do you know who Prince Charles in called in as his marriage guidance counsellor, according to various articles like The Guardian and things like that? It was Jimmy Savile. <laughs> Jimmy, go, go, honestly, uh, it's, it, madness, isn't it? You know, you've got Prince Charles mates with Jimmy Savile and Prince Andrew friends with Nygaard and uh, Epstein. So, 
Um, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, you were talking about Imelda. Yeah, that, that's really made me laugh. <laughs> but um, we had an amazing day. We spent the whole day with her, and she had tons of energy. Um, and we were on a kind of campaign bus, and we stopped off at a mayor's house, and we stopped off at a, um, a nunnery. And by the end of the day, it kind of became clear that although she was supposed to be campaigning on behalf of her son, Bong Bong, I asked her, if would you want to stand to be um, the president of... And she basically said, yeah, and I'm sure Bong Bong wouldn't mind. Um, so it was more, that day was more about getting her publicity than her son. But the, the question that I asked her that seems to have caught everyone's imagination was, what would you like on your epitaph? And she said, um, here lies love. And I don't know whether you know this, but David Byrne and from Talking Heads and the DJ Fatboy Slim wrote a concept album called Here Lies Love on the back of that quote. And the album was later adapted um, into a rock musical that premiered off Broadway in 2013. And in between time, um, a year, about a year after my piece came out, Ruby Wax, do you remember Ruby Wax used to do Ruby Wax Meets? Yes, and the reason I know where you're going with this, I'll give you my reason of why I'm familiar. Not, I've never met her, but familiar with uh, the story of Imelda Marcos. When you finished your story, I'll tell you mine. Yeah. Oh, go on. Well, so Ruby Ruby Wax went off to meet Imelda Marcos, um, and as I was watching the program, I thought this would be really interesting. I thought, oh my God, she's just basically, you know, read my piece and used it as inspiration even down to asking Imelda, what would you like your epitaph to read? And as a young mum at the time, I think, um, I can't remember which year that was. I think it was uh, two, two or three years before I became a mum. And um, the, the, the whole musical was 2013. And I never quite got round to writing to Ruby Wax or Fatboy Slim or David Burns to say, or David Byrne to say, did you ever read this piece? Because um, it would be really, really lovely if you could give me a bit of credit where credit's due. So that was the that was my Imelda story. So I'm familiar with Imelda Marcos because do, are you aware? I, I very rarely watch television, but I haven't watched it in years. But I will go out my way to YouTube some history documentaries and stuff like that that were on the History Channel, and they had a really good series. I think it was called something like um, "Lost Gold of World War Two. It was something along those lines, and uh, they were searching for a fortune which Imelda's husband uh, was also searching for, and there was various. Um, intelligence agencies involved there was like 200 sites uh, this was a big old dig and they they were looking for it somewhere in the Philippines and there were all these markers it was a really good series and they do believe that the Marcos family did get access to some of the treasures and uh, there was all the CIA involved from World War Two and what was it the the forerunner of MI6 was it the OSS after World War Two they were all involved so that's how I know it and of course um, they showed uh, 
something to do with Ruby Wax and that interview um, on that when they were bringing up the history of the Marcos family. So if you haven't uh, ever seen that, I, I think it's available on, um, you know, it's a mainstream television programme. So Lost Gold of World War Two, something along those lines. And it's a very interesting programme. All right, just make a note of that because that sounds right up my road, to be honest. Um, yeah, I like all those programs about what happened to Diana Dawes' millions, and and you know they're really fascinating when people have sort of concealed their money so well after they die, no one can get to it. I'll tell you who did that better than anyone. Probably uh, what's called Despina. It was the Martin Bormann's financial organisation he'd set up for when the Nazi regime fell and uh, how the money of that spread into different German financial institutions and companies and things. So if you want to learn about how to make, you know, awful money legitimate, uh, look no further than Martin Bormann of the, uh, the Nazi party. Terrible human being, wonderful financier. Hmm. I think we, we're probably coming across a few of those in this whole pandemic, aren't we? Oh, I would be surprised if not. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, Russell Brand from, uh, you know, the, the comedian, I remember him uh, getting in some controversy because, you know, me being in the comedy circuit here about these things, about him calling out Hugo Boss at some award ceremony or something like that for making yeah. the Nazi uniforms. Uh, IBM with the technology for... Uh, doing all that kind of stuff uh, with the camps and everything. But the, it really did get spirited away, that Nazi money, into a variety of uh, schemes. And uh, Martin Bormann was a, a, a financial genius uh, on that one. And um, it, another one you want to watch, if you're interested in South America and what happened after World War Two would be um, Hunting Hitler, a very fascinating uh, programme. I thought it was all just conspiracy theories at first, but... There's a fair old evidence to say that Borman got away to down to South America and a couple of the others as well. Oh, interesting. I bet they did. I yeah, they... I, I think so. Uh, hunting Hitler and uh, Lost Gold of World War Two. Yeah, they're both made by the History Channel. So both, you know, what you would call mainstream journalism yeah. or mainstream documentary making and everything yeah both i very rarely watch uh, anything on the mainstream anymore but those two programs were, were very good surprisingly good actually yeah. interesting well um the next piece i'm going to talk about is is far more up to date and it was a piece so the melda marcos piece was the sunday express this next piece was in the Daily Mail, and it was a piece that I wrote with the headline, Could You Be Friends With Your Burglar? How two men have struck up an unlikely friendship after one broke in and brutally attacked the other. And what has happened, there's a, um, a serial villain called Peter Wolf. And he was a drug addict, and he needed money to buy drugs. And he broke into a house in um, Islington belonging to a, a gentleman called Will Riley, who had been in finance. And Will came home while Peter was there burgling his house, and he walked into his bedroom and saw Peter there. And the, these houses are five stories. Um, so he asked 
Peter, what, what are you doing here? And Peter said, oh, you know, I'm a neighbour and I saw that the door was open. So I was just a bit worried and I came in and Will knew immediately that that was a lie. And as Peter went to push past him, Will sort of grabbed hold of him. But as they started rolling down the stairs, um, you know, somehow Peter hit Will over the back of the head with a griddle. And then when they got to the bottom of the stairs, he hit him again with a terracotta pot. And Will somehow managed to trap um, Peter's arm sort of Sweeney style by pulling his jacket down. And somebody had called the police. And his Will's daughter came home to find her father being bundled into the back of an ambulance with blood coming from his head. And his wife came home to find that the front door had been kind of bashed in. And so it was all incredibly traumatic. And Will was discovering that, you know, he, he, he couldn't, he wasn't sleeping. You know, every time he opened his front door, he was worried whether there would be someone behind it. And then he, the police got in touch with him and they said, look, we've got this new scheme. It's called restorative justice. It's where you get to talk to the perpetrator, the person who's harmed you, and to ask them all the questions that you don't get to ask in court. Because court is just about really discovering whether people are guilty or innocent. It doesn't really give the victims any answers. And so Will, Will agreed. He went along with his wife to Pentonville. Um, they found out that Peter, who was 38, I think then, had spent pretty much half his life in prison or about 18 years in prison. And um, also there was a doctor and his partner and Peter had taken their laptop his the doctor's laptop and it basically had his life's work on that laptop and peter thought oh it's just a day out of my cell cup of tea and a biscuit will walked into the room and he said there were tissues on the table and a packet of chocolate hobnobs and he thought we won't need that and peter came in and he was kind of giving it all a, all a sob story about what a terrible childhood he'd had. And then he said, and when I met Will, and at that, Will exploded, and he said, we didn't meet at some bloody party. You burgled my house, and you took away the one thing I thought I could do, and that was to protect my wife and my child and my property. And something about that really resonated with Peter, because even though he was a villain, deep down, he was a human being, and he understood that sort of primeval urge of protecting your family. And when he realised that his actions had taken that security away from Will, they really sort of started to talk. And at the end of the session, the two men, Will and the Doctor, were asked... What, what they would like um, to see Peter do with his life. And Peter thought they were going to say, we want, we want you, we just want you to throw away the key, we never want to see him again. And they said, actually, um, we'd like to hear from him every six months 
to find out what he's doing and what he's doing to make things different for himself. And the long, long story short was that um, Peter began studying psychology in prison. Um, and when he came out, he became a, conser- um, a, a restorative justice facilitator. And he and Will kind of were sharing podiums together, talking about their experience. And Will said that after that, he never had another moment's anxiety about going into his house because he'd met the man, he'd, he'd found his reasons, he knew he was a drug addict, he knew he hadn't been targeted deliberately. And he, 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 he was able, you know, the whole thing lifted off his shoulders. But what was really interesting about that piece was that once it appeared in the Daily Mail, the Conservative government really stepped up and subsequently provided 29 million to help make restorative justice more widely available to everyone in the UK. And then I had an interview with Shamil Idris, who was the CEO of um, a non-governmental organization called Search for Common Ground. And they were about trying to um, resolve conflict in war zones and he read the piece and he said that they suddenly realised that they could adopt restorative justice into their practices um, and so they were helping sort of terrorists and people living with terrorists deal with violent conflict and they decided to use restorative justice as one of their tools to broker peace and then a playwright called um, Harriet Maidley read the feature and wrote a play called The Listening Room, which was performed in London in 2017 to rave reviews. And basically, the play looked at four different restorative justice stories. And what they got the actors to do was to wear headphones and listen to an interview with the perpetrator and the victim and basically to read their words out to the audience as as actors and so it was amazing the sort of um snowball effect that piece had and really interesting for me just to see that and i'd only had you know a, a very very early story i did was with a a pressure group called the surfers against sewage who basically was sick of sur- surfing in crap. Well, that's so, very uh, poignant this week with all the news that's come out. Uh, that's what I'll be reading out in this week's Beyond the News is all the sewage um, leaks that have come out with the drones covering it and all the dead animals that have been pulled out of the sea this week as well. So that's still very poignant. The sewage is still very much being released into the sea, unfortunately. Exactly. And what the hell? You know, this was 1990 when that story came out, and no one had heard of um, Service Against Sewage. It was in the Daily Mirror. It was double-page spread in the Daily Mirror. And the reason it got quite a lot of attraction was because there was a surfer wearing a gas mask, so the picture was very powerful. Um, but on the back of that, a documentary was made about them. Every single newspaper covered their work. Um, they got loads and loads of traction, and that really launched the um, 
that really launched their charity. And it was a story I wrote when I was working at um, a features agency, and they really didn't want me to cover it because they just couldn't see a market for it. So I said, I'm going to go and do this in my own time, and I did. And that was that was kind of the result. That, and it just made me realise, wow, you know, this can be quite powerful, this journalism stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, they say the pen is mightier than the sword, don't they? Um, they do say that. But what, what Jim Grant says is, he who wields the sword decides who wields the pen. That's my yeah. saying. <laughs> that's a great... That's a great quote. <laughs> that's uh, that's what I find. But yeah, the pen is mighty in the sword. But yeah, it's it's absolutely it's literally disgusting that um, we've got these corporations that tell us you need to do this for the earth. You need to have this for the earth. In Eastbourne, my hometown, they shut down some of the major roads for an afternoon, all in aid of the earth, while these corporations simultaneously pump literal crap into the water uh, of our oceans, and it's. You know, the hypocrisy staggers me. There, there is a lot of hypocrisy, a lot. Um, which brings us on to the next piece, which is totally different to either of the two that have just come before. Um, and it was a really great story that came out of a visit that I made to India on, on a, a totally different job. So I was on a job with um, Goldie Horn and Mark Shand. So Mark Shand, who was Camilla Parker Bowles' brother. And they, Mark was absolutely immersed in trying to save the Asian elephant that is severely endangered and far more endangered than the African elephant. And Goldie Horn, who loves India and is quite spiritual and loves the elephant because it's a very matriarchal society, was making a documentary with him um, about the elephant. Anyway, that was great. I reported on that. But what I discovered while I was there was that the there's, a, a, there's kind of... Um, Sorry, that was a call coming in. There was kind of um, an uneasy rapprochement between the elephant and the Indians. And basically, the Indians revere the elephant. So obviously, they have the god Ganesh. They don't want to do anything to hurt the elephant. But quite often, they find themselves being confronted by a migrating herd that wants to trample their village. So, you know, they really have no choice but to try and get rid of the herd. And because these elephants have been migrating for centuries, you know, they use the same migratory routes. You know, they haven't yet worked out, oh, we need to go around the village. Um, so there was often clashes between elephant and um, the Indian um rural communities and I was going to do that job with Don McCullen who as some people may know is a really famous war photographer and he was really up for doing the job and the only reason he didn't do the job was because the fee that we were being offered was pretty derisory 
and we had to pay our own expenses. But anyway, I really wanted to do it, so I didn't care. I didn't care if I didn't really make any money out of it. So off I went to do it. And I heard the most incredible stories about elephants, you know, about a baby elephant would fall into a a fast-flowing river and mum would die and the aunt would die trying to save it. So that elephant would end up in an elephant orphanage a bit, you know, further down the stream. And the remorse that elephants seem to show. So one man was killed by an elephant um, who presumably it was dark. He'd come across the elephant and the elephant had just trodden on him. And the reports were that the elephant went and stood by his grave for three or four nights running, you know, in what seemed to be an act of remorse. That's fascinating. Carry on. No, I was just going to say that's fascinating. And, of course, I think they observed... uh, I'm no expert on elephant behaviour, but I believe they um, observed burial rituals among their own kind as well. There's certain burial rituals that they... Elephant's graveyard and all that kind of stuff, that's where it comes from, isn't it? Yeah, so I've heard that as well, and that's that's all really fascinating. But one thing I found out that, you know, is not in any wildlife documentary is that um, elephants really like rice beer. (laughs) um, The army have stocks of rice beer for, you know, the infantry for their soldiers, and it's all kept locked up in a in the barracks and um, the elephants sniff it, sniff it out and they will break the door down to get it to the rice beer. <laughs> and so you kind of wonder what it might be like coming across a pissed elephant late at night. Well, the question begs, isn't it? When when drunk people, humans get drunk, they see elephants. So what do drunk elephants see? Yeah. They see drunk humans? Uh, oh, I bet they do. With little <laughs> halos, maybe. <laughs> That's, that's, that's great. I've never seen a drunk elephant. No, I've um, never seen a drunk elephant. But they were, we went to this, um, they like they like to go to tea plantations, elephants, not to take the tea bushes, but um, the tea bushes are protected with trees that shade them so that they don't get too burnt by the sun. And the elephants like the leaves from the shade trees so they could often be seen sort of marauding in tea plantations. So we visited this tea plantation, and it was amazing. This guy came out who owned the plantation, very posh Indian. We were in West Bengal, and he had sort of brilliantined hair and pinstripe shorts. And we sat in his garden sipping tea, and eating ginger cake next to footprints, elephants' footprints, because an elephant had been through the garden the night before. <laughs> so it was just, it was just amazing. And the, the guy who did end up being the photographer on that job, uh, a guy called um, Joss Barrett, he was working for the BBC at the time, and I'd met him in Manila on, you know, when I was. Um, on a film set for the BBC in Manila, which was really why I was there. And we made a connection, and he came with me to do that job. And that kind of launched his career in many respects. And he is now the photographer for Ken Loach, and has been probably for the last 20 years, because Ken is very, very loyal to people who work with him. 
Um, and Ken Loach, for people who don't know, is the director of a film called I, Daniel Blake, which came out a few years ago. And I personally had such a sore throat coming out of that film just to stop myself sobbing out loud because it was so desperate about the gig economy. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you know, they chose a good person to illustrate the gig economy because they got um, David Johns, a comedian, to play the role. So if there's anyone that knows about the gig economy uh, and what seems to be being rolled out, you know, for nationwide for zero hour contracts, uh, it would be comedians. What do you think of Ken being kicked out of the Labour Party? I think it can't mean we have a Labour Party anymore if Ken's gone. No, because you mean a knighted lawyer lord doesn't speak for the working class? Oh, um, I'm, I'm astounded. Oh, what, what, you know, Keir Starmer, because he loves the unions, you know, and the unions love him so much. And it, it, it's, um, there, there's a comedian called Nick Doody, and he had this line, and he said, You can't write swan on a pig, push it into a lake, and expect it to swim. And, yeah. and I think you can't say we're the party of the working class we're going to you know not get on with the unions not stand up for any of their rights not um go against any of the mandates for uh, the the vaccine uh, a knighted lawyer lord um and uh, who who pretty much is even more you know he's not really opposition if boris johnson is in favor of locking us down then keir starmer as the opposition should oppose and go well actually no we should look at the studies in florida and texas to say if we're open um that we actually have a lower rate of this and we don't have the suicide rates and the economic depression and all that kind of stuff but keir starmer's idea of um opposition is well no it's not locked down hard enough oh it's desperate isn't it it, it's... it's so desperate. I don't know how. Uh, I, I, you know, what are they not? We we can all see the charts that you know the great Joel Smalley is producing on Twitter. Sorry, could, I don't know of those charts. Could you just plug those again? Uh, are we to, what charts yes, are we talking so about? Joel Smalley. Um, he is. Let me just double check what he is. So Joel is at real Joel Smalley on Twitter and he's a numbers man and he's produced these amazing graphs that show very clearly what happened in Singapore for example when they introduced the vaccine so they had pretty much no deaths in Singapore and various other countries um I can't remember the other two that I looked at recently but there was another couple of countries who um, had pretty much no deaths until they introduced the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And he's also done graphs showing what happened when masks began to be mandated and how that raised the figures for contracting COVID. Or well, it was a coincidence, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, could you just spell that out for my listeners again and uh, I'll go back and I'll bring it because I'm totally unfamiliar with that guy's work and I, I love a good number. I love a good number crunch and some statistics and stuff like that. They're so, uh, I like, to, when I debate people on social media, I don't like to actually say anything. I like to be able to post a link which t- sells the truth and the truth can speak for itself usually if, it, if it's that, that. That's the kind of way I do it because you know people would love a good argument and I don't get dragged into it. But in the same time, we do need to start 
um, getting through to the reality deniers at this point because we suspected they were wrong in 2020. We know that they are now. And, um, you know, we just don't need to have a word with these people and say we can all agree to disagree on certain things. But having a lockdown again, I mean, we've already got supply chain shortages. Yeah, that would be a great idea for another. I mean, they're already saying the supply chain is going to be broken for the next year. What What's another lockdown going to do on top of it? And we haven't even begun to mention what that does to the third world with the deaths uh, in poverty and starvation that are rising in the third world, probably where those poor um, in um, those poor elephants uh, were and everything. Oh, the question I was going to ask you, you know the, the elephant footprints in the back garden that the guy yeah. saw? Were they in a straight line or were they staggered around like he'd found some rice beer? I know, I think this was one who hadn't been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, it, yeah, it, tea was the only thing on offer as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, that's, they're all on sallybeck.co.uk and that one's called Charge of the Heavy Brigade. And yeah. uh, it's got down the bottom, you can download the full article PDF file. So that's a that's a computer file, not one of Prince Andrew's mates. So we refer. No, and that was in uh, Harper's and Queen, so it'll be in the magazine section. And Joel Smalley is spelt um, J O E L, yep. and S M A double L E Y, and he's Joel Smalley. Thank you. I've never heard of that guy before, so I'll check that guy out. And do you know what nationality he is? Where he is in the world? I well I I know where he lives and it's in the UK. Oh, well, um, I, I might be able to get I him as a guest then. Oh, I'd love he, that. You know, I don't know if it would make for good radio him crunching the numbers, but just, I'm I'm just a big numbers fan. I love that. They they usually speak for themselves. So yeah, I'll reach out to him. Yeah, do. And, um, and then the last piece. Yep. Uh, Scandinavians ask why we English hate our children. Maybe they're right. That's the article I'm reading from sallybeck.co.uk. And it's a ghosted feature with Sir Al Ainsley Green. Have I pronounced his name correctly? Yes. Good. <laughs> and he is the former Children's Commissioner for England. And it was um, his job to basically make things better for children. And I was, he wrote a whole book about this. So... Um, that's how I, I, I came to me. He only did one tabloid piece, and this was it. And he was basically saying that we treat our children really badly. And he gave some examples. And he said, you know, we've got this mosquito ultrasonic weapon that's designed to stop kids gathering in sort of a single place because adults find it very threatening to see a group of teenagers but basically you know what they're doing they can't go into a pub they don't want to go into a youth club because they're too old for that so they need somewhere that they can meet up and talk to their mates and chat and find out what's going on and what the government did was go, oh, yeah, we're not going to let them do that. So they invented this mosquito ultrasonic weapon with a really high-pitched noise that uh, meant that kids gathering in certain places, they just couldn't do it because of the noise. I um, remember those. 
Yeah, I've, I've, um, I remember reading about those and seeing those on the news. That must be, they, that technology must be quite old because I remember seeing those articles on the news and I haven't watched the news in years. Well, yeah, exactly. And I don't know if they still exist, but um, this was 2018 when I wrote this, so it's, it, it's not that long ago. Um, and he was talking about how we, we've, we stop our kids from taking any risks whatsoever. So children are not allowed to go outside in the rain in case they get wet. Whereas in Denmark, in the forest school, you know, they're encouraged to play outside all year round. And there's nothing better if you're a kid splashing in puddles and all you need is the right clothes. And what, what's the problem? Um, he talked about two mums, one from the US, one from the UK, who'd written a book about, they both had Dutch partners and were living in the Netherlands. And um, they'd written a book because Dutch children are supposed to be the happiest in the world. And the thing about Dutch children is they have little or no homework in primary school. They're not tested in league tables. They're not just seen but also heard. And they're trusted to ride their bikes to school alone and allowed to play outside unsupervised. And they have regular family meals and spend more time with their mum and dads than other children and um, the Dutch consider investing in children to be as as important as adults with us it seems to be kind of survival of the fittest well Um, I've I've got two comments to make about that one um, I think you know about you know places for children to meet and do things and get invested in their community nothing gets them invested in their community more than their the, the, over successive governments over the last 50 years have taken away their ability to be able to start their own business without bureaucracy interfering. You know, nothing... I saw an article the other day about a young gardener and he went out, started his own firm at about 16 and then by the time it came around to go to university he said, there's no point, I'm already making more than I would <laughs> with any degree. And sure enough, his mates come round there looking for work because they want to work with a friend. They don't want to be paid minimum wage by someone at hates their guts and then get told you know do you know what i mean so that's that's comment number one on it and comment number two i have on it when you treat people regardless of their age like children most will bend their will to behave like children so what have we got at the moment we had one of the most nanny states of the last 40 years um, you know, I don't know how old this article is, but we've had one of the most biggest nanny states over the last 40 years. And as a result, we've now got some of the most compliant, obedient people on earth. And it begins in that school system as well. You know, imagine having children full of self-esteem, life and energy in that school system. They're going to rip that mask off and tell you where to stick it. So those are my two comments. We need more small businesses, less bureaucracy for the kids to start their own, get their mates together, and then they can buy their own place to hang out. Uh, and that's another thing as well, you know, wage inflation versus uh, house price inflation. House price inflation has gone off the roof, but wage inflation, you know, has gone up more or less, you know, about 3%, that kind of stuff. So it's been able to people to get, not get, in the housing ladder and when people are on the housing ladder they're invested in their own communities they start in their own business and when you do business you it teaches you so many other skills to do 
and and then you could have something at the school in the school system there's nothing in the school system that teaches you how to run your own business or how to run for council how to actually make your own way in the world it's a school system based on pavlovian you know ding ding this is the fact you remember it we reward you if you remember it correctly i.e a test you know so those, those are my three comments sorry to go off on one there <laughs> uh, yeah well i i watched last night i don't know if you've watched it it's the pro. It's a documentary called Inside Job. Is that, is that the nine eleven documentary? No, it's about the two thousand and eight banking crash. Oh yes, yes, I remember that. Is that uh, narrated by Matt Damon? Yeah, yeah, it's on Netflix. Yeah, I I bought the DVD of it years ago. Yeah, and oh, it just made me realise, you know, how greed. Um, can just destroy societies and I, I can't remember where I heard this the other day or who was saying it but they were basically saying the most controlled societies tend to die out and they gave an example of, of, sort of ancient culture that had died out and I can't remember what it was but I fear that, you know, we're kind of heading that way. And what I used to love about going to places like India and Philippines was that there's no rules. And, you know, you really have to think for yourself. And um, people will, even if there are rules, people will find a, a way to bend the rules. And, okay, it meant you weren't protected in some circumstances. And there, there was room for there to be a happy medium but also you just felt like an adult and I just feel like living in the UK I'm being treated like a naughty child all the time well yeah there's numerous instances of that oh you're not brushing your teeth correctly so we're going to add fluoride to your water supply now um you know the idea of taxation was originally meant to be right let's band together we need some small government to run a healthcare system and a school system and you know keep the roads and fill the potholes in and that kind of stuff but now taxation is a means of being able to coerce your lifestyle choices tobacco is bad for you naughty if you're going to have that we're going to make it cost more for you it's it's gone from a, a mechanism of running the country to a means of um you know social coercion and, and things like that and of course like I said when you treat people like children they do act like children if you treat people like an adult a friend of mine uh, was a single parent and he always brought his daughter along to all our sort of adult engagements and as we watched her grow up she had way better social skills than any of the peers in her uh, age group and there wasn't that age divide gap you know and she never looked at like oh my dad's uncool or anything like that because she'd always grown up with him and been down the pub and seen him with his friends and when I've been on the continent and they have their family get-togethers, you know, there isn't the binge drinking on in Europe that you see in the UK. Why? Because they're all out with their families, uh, that sense of communities. And they probably know the pub landlord rather than it being some Weatherspoons chains or anything like that. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. Well, I think another really worrying thing that Ainsley um, highlighted was how services for our vulnerable have been decimated and you know parents with disabled children or children with special needs describe it as like wading through a swamp trying to get any um, help at all and he told me this one story and I just 
when he told me, I just thought, really, do we really live in this kind of country? And there was a girl called Beth, age 13, confined to a wheelchair, and her classmates thought it was really funny to remove the wheels from her chair and leave her in the playing field in the pouring rain. And I just thought, seriously? Well, my... um, I don't really put much stand-up on the internet anymore, but what I do do is sketches, and something that I made probably about five or six years ago was um, the founder of Unilad, uh, the media publication and Lad Bible. It's a guy called Alex Partridge. So um, me and him did a comedy sketch, and I wrote it, and it's called How to Kill 4,000 Disabled People. And it was a damning indictment of Ian Duncan Smith's austerity policies. And, of course, that was when it was 4,000. I've seen now reports to say that it's anywhere up to 100,000 deaths as a result of Tory austerity. And um, I say that knowing for a while that I don't think Keir Starmer will do anything different. I'm pretty sure he won't. I'm pretty sure he won't. He's a member of the Trilateral Commission, Keir Starmer, isn't he? Oh, I didn't know that. I'm well aware of what the Trilateral Commission is. I had no idea he was a member of it. Um, It wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, And, of course, you know, people say, oh, there's no conspiracy or anything like that. But if he is a member of the Trilateral Commission, bearing in mind we also had Bill Gates, I believe, visiting Boris Johnson in the last week or so. So so we can see these kind of things happening. And... um, I do believe that um, it's it's almost like institutionalism. You know where you get perhaps that guy Peter from one of your stories earlier, the burglar might be able to talk about institutionalism, but I almost believe that the government is installing that sense of institutionalism uh, in children right from the get-go. And we're always taught, you know, if someone bullies you at school, don't punch them in the nose, go and get a teacher. That sort of says from an early age, you are powerless, the state is your saviour. That's how I see it. And I'm not advocating that you do punch a billion on the nose, I'm just breaking down the psychology of it. You are helpless and you will come to the state who is your saviour. What does that create? It creates a, a phenomenon known as learned helplessness. And uh, I think that this might be one of the reasons why we are being so compliant with our erosion of our civil liberties. It's it's very worrying, isn't it? What was really worrying, uh, one statistic that came out of this interview with Ainsley was that um, um, the outcomes for children's health care, education, social care, youth justice and poverty are amongst the worst in the developed world in the UK. And we've dropped from ninth in 2014 to 13th in 2016 behind Romania, Israel and Colombia. And so long as he can still hide in a fridge and get a massive majority, he's going to continue to do it. Uh, They're all going to continue to do it. And when the people have finally had enough of Boris Johnson, they'll bring in someone else who will do exactly the same thing. Or uh, you'll get Keir Starmer, who may be even worse. I I think we're living in a time where in the next 10 years we will see... Uh, I, I'm, I'm neutral on Trump. I'm not a Trump fan or a Trump hater. But 
what I saw him do to the Republican Party was take it back to its grassroots, take it out of the hands of the rhinos and put it into the hands of actually the traditional Republicans. And I think it's only a matter of time before someone does that to the Tory party or someone does it to the Labour party um, or a new party um, emerges that because, there, you know, more people do not vote effectively none of the above more than any other party now, I believe, or at least it's definitely in that sort of ballpark. If you could get a political party that all the disenfranchised voters believed in, um, you know, I think it would do very, very well. So I think we're in a period of limbo now uh, of change where either the parties are going to take get taken over by their grassroots again. Um, and it might even be a case of that happening in the Labour Party where Keir Starmer goes, right, let's kick out everyone that's a lefty socialist. And he does that and realises it's just him and his mates standing in an empty conference room. And the rest of the guys go and form, you know, Labour B or whatever they call it. You know, you can't call it New Labour because Tony Blair's already destroyed that. But something else. I think we're living in a time um, where there will be big political change and it's going to drip, 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 drip. And when it, I have no idea on the time frame, but when the dam bursts, it will burst. It, this will be like a breaking dam. Drip, 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 splosh. And then everyone's going to get uh, wet, hopefully, in the moisture of freedom and liberty. But um, uh, but that, that's that's my view. What do you think on my opinion then? Well, I think you're. I think you're. Well, I hope you're right. Um, I just don't really know why people voted Boris Johnson in, apart from the fact that um, the Brits really like a character. It's. I think you can look at cult of celebrity. You can look at mainstream media vilifying his opponent, Jeremy Corbyn, and um, you can also look at Jeremy Corbyn uh, shooting. Uh, a sawn-off shotgun straight to his own foot at point-blank range when he looked at the Labour heartlands. Where's my traditional Labour vote? Right. Where's the traditional vote where everyone was leave? Oh, are they in exactly the same areas, pretty much everywhere outside of London and Brighton? Right. OK, then I'll go against my own grassroots and, you know, go against... Because he was pretty much uh, a lever in his run-up to the candidacy for the Labour leadership. And then when he became a leader, it's almost like, oh, you know what, I've changed my mind. I'm more of a fan of the EU. Uh, let's try and, you know, get another vote and try and change it from within. So he may... Either Jeremy Corbyn was controlled opposition or he made the biggest tactical blunder that any opposition leader has ever made when he looked at, right, what's the biggest issue in Britain? Brexit. Right, where was my heartlands? Right, they're all leavers. Right, I'll go remain then. So that's how I think Boris Johnson got in. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I do know, you know, when I was talking, um, I, I've got some friends who live out in the country and uh, they were giving me their reasons for voting for Brexit. And none of them were a valid, you know, none of them were a serious reason. It give, seems. I can give you mine. I didn't. I didn't want to pay taxes to two different governments. I was a big fan of multiculturalism. So when I went to Spain, I wanted the Spanish version of Spain, not the EU version of Spain. Um, I, I'm a massive fan of the NHS, and one one cannot. The NHS does not have infinite resources. Therefore, if there's no infinite supply, it cannot expect expected to be maintained under indefinite 
demand. So if you're going to have open borders, you're going to have more people using the healthcare system. I'm assuming that these people are refugees, um, uh, people with no money that aren't going to be able to afford private healthcare. So they're going to put more of a demand on the system. So one cannot have open borders and a free healthcare system. Uh, that, that, was, that was my take on it. And of course, uh, another reason is the modern day left failed to speak out when we were bombing these poor p- countries' peoples back to the Stone Age. I mean, uh, and it's been like that ever since Iran. You know, we, uh, the CIA stuck their nose in there. Iran had loads of women's rights. They were a pretty liberal place in the Middle East, and then they weren't. Then, uh, and again, not saying Gaddafi was a good person, but look at the state of Libya before and after. You know, look at the state of poverty before and after there. Uh, Syria, the same again. I'm not defending any of these people that run these countries or anything like that. I'm just saying bombing their entire infrastructure is not going to make them feel, oh, we've been liberated. Thank you for that. You know, it's not going to happen. They're going to want up, up and leave. And what's their attitude going to be when they get to the West? Thank you. for. I know that you meant well, um, you know, bombing my granny because she was too fast to move and thanks for using the depleted uranium that'll be around for the next 25,000 years in Iraq so I can't blame these people for having a beef when they come to Britain so I never ever blame any refugees uh, for wanting to come here I blame the politicians and I actually blame we the people for allowing our politicians to get away with it because the Chilquot inquiry said Tony Blair should be put on some sort of trial that was their recommendation we haven't done it yeah 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 um, Jim, I think we're running out of time, aren't we? Yeah, I think we're good. So just one last little... Uh, well, is there anything else, any subjects you want to cover um, quickly or any opinions or anything in the last sort of few minutes or anything? No, but I think you wanted to ask me about my relatives in Nuremberg, didn't you? Yes, well, I've had... Uh, this is a question from Martina. She would like to know about your relatives that participated in the Nuremberg trials and also D seconded that and said she'd love to know more about that as well. Uh, we mentioned it last time on the previous yeah. podcast. Uh, what, yeah, and um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Martina and Dee, so there is a mini biography about my two relatives who were Reiner and Philip Fail. And I can, and that's spelled F-E-H-L. And all I can tell you at the moment is that I know that they were at Nuremberg and one was an interrogator and the other was an interpreter. Um, And we've got a mini biography that tells me more details about that. But I don't know where I've put it. Um, Because it's, it's a paper and not book, and there are a lot of piles of paper in my place, as you can imagine. I'm not entirely sure which pile of paper it's in. So I will try and research more about that. But I can tell you that when the last time I saw them living in Venice, they after the war, they went to live in the US. Um, and they still have two daughters who live in the US. And the last time I saw them was in Rome. And their job in Rome was at the Vatican. And uh, they were both art historians. And their job was to put all the books in the Vatican Library onto microfiche, which must have been a fascinating job. And Philip um, gave us a guided tour of the Sistine Chapel. And when you've got somebody who really, really knows every nuance of that ceiling, it's fascinating. So apparently uh, the way Mary 
is placed in the painting is quite a rebellious. It, it gives her more importance than the church would like her to have had and those kind of things. But they were an amazing couple. But I never talked to them about it. You know, you don't with your relatives. You just, you know, you just don't. I don't really know why. Um, sadly, they're, they're both dead now. But um, I, I do really want to find more about that story. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, well, you've probably put that book in the same place that Matt Hancock has put all the government contracts to his mates, you know, the ones he can't find either. So it's, it's probably in the same compartment there somewhere. I should probably also add that um, the EU did do some wonderful things and um, uh, that, that there's definitely some things from the EU that should have been kept, like the Human Rights Act, for example. So um, you know, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not completely anti uh, EU, but that was you know that was the, some of my reasons for voting leave and everything. But um, what we all need to do now, whether leave or remainer, is um, I think hold our current whatever government we've got now is doing. Uh -huh. um, I a lot of people think that they say they're doing a terrible job. I actually think the government's doing a wonderful job. It just doesn't work for us. It's working for other people, and I think. <laughs> that's the point that perhaps we all need to unify around uh, regardless of you know whether we're on the left or the right whether we're a lever or remainer we're all human beings and um you know i think we all just want to be free and live our lives with government interference kept to a minimum i think and that's what this show is all about whether you're a lever or a remainer all are welcome here if you like freedom and um Sally, I'm just going to give your website one more plug. It's www.sallybeck.co.uk. All the articles are on there. And you're also a writer for a Conservative Woman as well. Is that .com or .co.uk? I forget now. .co.uk. Uh, yeah, that, that would be great. So, Sally, uh, any closing comments or anything you want to add at the end here? Um, no, I would just say, you know, obviously I'm very, very proud of all the work that I'm doing for the Conservative Women on the COVID response um, and what's going on, and particularly the figures, the vaccine damage figures that I've been looking at and, and you know, debunking headlines. There was one the other day, five in one, uh, sorry, one in five pregnant women is in the most serious uh, part of ICU. And it made it look, oh, unvaccinated pregnant women. And it just made it look as though one in five unvaccinated women were in ICU with COVID. And when you drilled down into the figures, it was absolutely nothing like that. And what had happened was that um, the NHS had issued a press release and no one had actually done any extra research on the press release. They just published it and that was our MSM. What do you think of today's so-called journalists because you know your journalism involves learning about things and then writing it for yourself you're a reporter but what we seem to have now are not reporters they seem to be repeaters they take the press statement uh, that's given to them as gospel, it seems, whereas the mainstream media's job is to naturally assume the government is hiding something or lying about something and bring the public the truth. Am I wrong about what I think a journalist should be? No, you're right about what you, you think a journalist should be. Um, there's one 
you know, one of the rules that we as journalists have to abide by is that we shouldn't cause the panic. And I suppose you could argue that not, you, you know, if you sort of started to really dig into everything we're being told by the government, it might cause a panic. But at the same time, if you listen to the BBC touting the daily COVID death figures, there's they don't give you any comparison. They don't put it into perspective. So... I've never heard the BBC that COVID say that COVID is not in the top ten um, diseases uh, that uh, they you know that are likely to kill you. In fact, nowhere near. And so we've they've gone along with this project fear, which has been very disturbing to me. And I don't really know how we get out of it. Really, I think we get out of it by telling the truth to as many people as possible and trying to keep calm when we do it uh, because you're going to experience cognitive dissonance. Um, it's What's that old saying? It's easier to con someone than convince they've been conned. People's egos get involved. Uh, people don't like to be wrong. But I think we need to have these uncomfortable conversations to say, I know you thought I was mad for the last 10 years, but we need to start looking at the evidence that I may be correct. And I know that's difficult, but it's not about me at about this point, because if I am correct, it's really bad for all of us. And here's why. That's what I think we sort of need to do. I think Britain will be one of the worst um, countries to be able to sort of go under the, the brainwashing spell of the, the mass media. And so I think we'll be one of the last countries to wake up from their um, mainstream media induced coma. But I think we will get there. Yeah, well, amen to that. <laughs> Sally Beck, uh, thank you very much for joining us here today. And um, yeah, cheers.